Welcome to Hypergen Sales Leaders Podcast, the show that equips you with the cutting edge strategies, wisdom, and inspiration to become a top-notch sales leader in today's ever-evolving business landscape. I'm your host, John Mansour, and each episode will bring you in-depth conversations with sales trailblazers, industry experts, and thought leaders who have mastered the art of leadership and revenue generation. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting your journey, join us as we unlock the secrets to sales success. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Hypergen's Sales Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, John Mansour. Joining me from Atlanta, Georgia is Tate Heyman. He is the Chief Revenue Officer with Digit. Digit is the only enterprise wealth management platform that's powered by institutional grade analytics and risk management tools. So we're excited to have you on the show, Tate. Welcome. Thanks a lot, John. A pleasure to be here. Yeah, I figure we can start. Just maybe you can give us a quick overview of, of Digit and, and how you found your way into that role. Absolutely. So uh, the company itself, uh, we've got over two decades of institutional level analytics and risk assessment. A couple of previous companies that we grew and built and sold were algorithmics that was focused around global bank portfolio portfolios and the risk within them. Sold that platform to IBM, it became IBM's risk platform. And then another company called R Squared came on the heels of that. It was focused really more on hedge fund portfolio risk, asset manager type portfolio risk. That platform was sold to Standard & Poor's, so it became S&P's kind of risk platform. And so as we came to the end of that, our three original founders were talking with clients and people in the industry, and they said, you can't do this kind of stuff. It's people a little bit more downstream, if you will, more in the wealth management space. And so we're a seven-year-old company focused on the client advisor experience. Um, can we help advisors look smart? We're not a, a robo platform. We're not trying to get rid of advisors or get rid of people. We're trying to amplify those people, make them look smart, allow them to answer questions live on the fly as their clients query what's going on inside their portfolios so that they can deliver a really differentiating client experience. And the wealth management industry had also morphed over that time, right? It used to be U.S. stocks and bonds or Canadian stocks and bonds, whatever it might be. It's pretty much it. Time has changed. The world's gotten smaller. People are investing globally. They're getting into alternatives, dealing with private equity, hedge funds, multi-currency, a number of different things are now more of the wealth management platform or profile than maybe five, 10 years ago. And so the mesh point there is the demand for higher level analytics. I'm an advisor. I really want to compete with the Wall Street guys and be able to deliver top of the line analytics and, and analysis on different all asset classes, different types of investments. To do that, I've got to have the toolbox that lets me deliver that. So our focus is the high net worth, ultra high net worth end of the scale, where if someone's trading, got a $10 million shop trading ETFs, we're probably too big of a hammer for that. But as portfolios get more complex and get a variety of different types of investments and asset classes in them, we really shine because we've been doing it for so long on the institutional side. And now we've just brought that capability over to uh, more of the, I would say retail, but individual investor wealth management side that our clients are catering to. For myself, a long and checkered uh, background, I'm really more of a mathematician from the beginning, got interested in the financial world, started building computer models for financial trading, and got into the fintech space 
on the heels of that, joined a company called Pertrack, early 2000s. We grew that company. It was bought by a private equity firm, Insight Venture Partners out of New York. That company then bought another company called Investment. We glued those two companies together, grew that company and sold it to NASDAQ. And so that was about a 20 year journey from private company to merged company to sold to Fortune 500 company, the entire spectrum of different work environments and growing and selling, et cetera. And I enjoy the entrepreneurial type stuff. I like to be able to have an effect. The things that I do, I want to be able to see them bring success and, and have a, a big component in the, the, the success of the company. And so I got introduced to Digit and a really perfect fit. Got a lot of global sales experience. They're growing their sales organization really from scratch. Got a great product in a really big marketplace. Clearly the best product in the, the space. So it's a good fit uh, for me and we're excited about the future. Awesome. And, and you've been with Digit, is it about two years now? Two years now, yeah. Okay. And I guess just thinking about those two years over the course of that time, what's been the biggest, some of the, uh, we can look at the good, the bad, the challenges, the exciting developments. What's that look like within that window? Yeah, for sure. When I joined the firm, we had two salespeople. They both reported directly to the CEO. It's a heavy engineering, mathematics, finance type company. So we now have about 90 employees. And even today, we only have four salespeople and one person in marketing. So we're heavy on the development side. As a result, we've got a fantastic platform and product with a lot of really good design elements and good capabilities. But when I joined the firm, we had one guy that sold to Canada and one guy covering this place called the United States of America, which is pretty large and no marketing. Everything had been grown in a sense, organically, word of mouth, got into some really big companies in Canada. And that kind of led us down the path. Clients like National Bank, Independent Network of Advisors, CI Financial, Raymond James Canada, people of that ilk, um, but really not an organization built for revenue generation. And so my job is to come in and, and deliver that, build a team, uh, cover the world, start to get the word out better. And so our challenge has been, to be honest, just trying to make sure people know we exist, right? We're really well known in Canada um, because of the, the client base that we have there, not as well known in the U.S. Uh, U.S. is a pretty big market. So it'd be you know, good to get the word out, make sure people know uh, who we are, what we do, why we're better, and just build the revenue channel uh, based on that. No reason we can't do things globally. Right now, our focus is on the U.S., but have some inroads into the U.K. and even a couple in the Middle East. So no reason for us not to think about what we might do in a, a global nature. But U.S. is definitely a, the focal point for growth here in the near term. Gotcha. Okay. And thinking about some of those, maybe we can talk about some of those most effective best practices, tools that you've used implementation-wise, inbound, outbound strategies, ultimately overseeing revenue as you do. What would you say are some of those staple marks, hallmarks for scaling success, especially when you're trying to organize things in the first place to, to flow better? Yeah, that's a good question. It's probably an age-old question, right? And how do you do that in various industries and, and what are the components that come to play? In our case, we've got newer technology, so the, the competition is 10, 15, 20 years old, and 
technology changes a lot, right? It doesn't mean that they also haven't been trying to change, but it's a little bit harder to say, all right, start with a database structure that was built 15 years ago. How do you put that into the web? How do you make it do everything you need it to do? And most companies find it prohibitively expensive to back up and start over and say, we're just going to redo our database structure or something. So our technology is built in the web from the very beginning, gives us the best technology fit. We can be a standalone entity that runs a business. We can be a part of a tech stack. And that flexibility gives us a lot of opportunity, you know, across the board. I think anytime you're building an organization, and this is one of the things I think that is key, sales leaders tend to come from salespeople. That makes sense. But there are also two different cuts of cloth there, right? A, a salesperson who's successful typically is focused on eating what they can kill. And it's all about you as an individual, basically, and how hard you hustle and how well you teach yourself things and can shine in front of a prospect and all those kinds of things that those are important traits to have for success. When you become a sales leader, that has to transition, right? Like you you can't still be the one person that closes every deal or one person that talks to and does discovery with every prospect, right? And so now it morphs and you really need to focus on how can I coach train, develop other people so that you can scale. The organization can't scale without more than one person, if you will. And so the key really for me is, can you find talent? Can you retain that talent? Can you coach that talent? Can you help that talent be successful? And even if I'm the greediest person in the world and all I care about is my own success, really that's going to be measured on the development of those people. If I can help those people be successful, that really equates to my success. And you have to make that transition. You have to move into a spot where you think, okay, it's not just about me winning a deal. It's about, can I help other people win deals so that we're winning four, five, six deals at a time rather than one off wins here and there kind of thing. And so the people that, that I've built the team around have all worked for me before or know me. They like what we do and they want to continue to be in that kind of environment where they know that someone cares about their success and is trying to make sure that they overachieve. And I think that's the thing that when you've got that kind of culture built around the sales organization, you can grow it. It's very difficult if you're losing a third, a half of your team every 12 months and having to start over again and rebuild and retrain and reteach. And you need to find talent. You need to give them opportunity. You need to help them be successful. You need to give them avenues for growth. If you can do that, you can put together a world-class organization. And what I always tell our folks is we could sell chocolate chip cookies and be successful. If we've got good people, we'll probably figure it out, right? So can you get good people, get them happy, get them successful? And then, yeah, if you've got a good product, that's fantastic. But it doesn't matter as much as long as you've got talent.
Absolutely. That's a great point. And I think one that our listenership is keenly interested uh, as well. When, as a sales leader yourself, I'd be curious to hear, and you, you did touch on some of it already, but some of the key things you look for implement when it comes to obviously finding talent, retaining it, keeping up morale during the, when things are good, it's easy to be excited and all that camaraderie. When there's a little bit of a slowdown, whether it's outside of your control, something going on in the market or the economy, or what are some of the, some of the maybe building blocks for retaining talent and building morale throughout the good and the bad times? Yeah. Like you said, if things are flying off the shelves and everybody's winning and stuff like that, it's certainly easier. I think you want to try to set targets and goals that everyone believes are believable. It doesn't mean they have to be easy, but if people don't believe them, and all you do every year is take the success and multiply it by 125% and say that's the new target, I think people burn their credibility that way, right? It's hard to justify things if the market doesn't justify it. And look, if you have good talent, they're capable, they can see the tea leaves and they can understand what's the real opportunity set look like. Um, and so I think trying to, to have a culture that is aggressive but achievable that they know that the leadership is looking out for them and trying to again help them be successful i think in today's world a lot of times people are jumping around because they get this opportunity or that opportunity but i think you've seen probably over the last couple of years as the market turns a little bit those are the first people that find themselves back on the street again because there is no loyalty or track record or anything there that really supports whatever opportunity they got themselves into. And at the end of the day, it's about the people, right? And if you're confident in the people that you're working with, then everybody's rowing the boat in the same direction, then I think you've got a real good chance to be successful. And so it's really a key to me to try to make sure that's the case. And if Look, if someone's not interested or they want to do, do something else, that's certainly their prerogative. I look at it as the company's responsibility to offer a good opportunity, whether that's chance for success, whether that's compensation, whether that's avenues for growth, it's up to the company to do that. If you don't present those things, then talented people will find opportunities elsewhere. But you want to build a culture where they feel like you have their best interest at heart. And I think if you can do that, then it weathers the storms up and down as to how things are going at the end of the day. If you have that kind of culture and definition in your teams, then you've got a much better chance uh, when things get a little topsy-turvy. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. It, you know, it's like that first who, then what approach. And, and I like that the point you made about having like more realistic expectations. It's that simple, might not be easy, but it's simple. The path is laid out. There's a game plan. Obviously, a lot of the the initiative, the prerogative falls on the sales guy. But yeah, that definitely having that supportive culture there is key. And in a similar vein, I'd be curious to hear too, just on a boots on the ground perspective, what for your industry specifically, what are like the, the best practices or most effective ways for generating new leads and closing deals in your field? What have you found specifically works best? Yeah. Look, I think we still have some work to do. We're trying to get our arms wrapped around our website and make it more speaking more clearly to the to the, the target audience that we're after, making sure that we're findable so that when people are looking for a system like ours, that we're at least in the mix. 
we have the best platform in the industry. Never had anyone look at it and say, you guys don't know what you're doing or anything like that. So for us, it's really a matter of trying to make sure that the word gets out there and that we communicate it better. I think in our case in particular, I think the key really with any business more generally is what is the strength that you bring to the marketplace? What is it about you and your company that really is a differentiator? And then you want to try to amplify that. For example, our CEO is a PhD in operations research. I have a master's in operations research from Georgia Tech. Um, we're an engineering, math, academic type company, right? So the key for us then is how do we amplify that? How do we make sure the marketplace knows that if you've got a finance problem, we're probably the right outfit to be talking to, right? So uh, a lot of our competition was built to do other things, maybe just aggregate data or just do reporting or something like that. But when it really comes to finance and what does it mean to, to price options properly and how do I make sure that I've got futures marked to market in a portfolio and how can I take private equity investments and compute the internal rate of return properly and so that I can fold that into the total portfolio and really understand what's going on across the entire investment envelope, then we're your guys for that, right? So what we want to do is make sure that if someone's got a problem and they can't figure it out or their current system won't solve it, we want them to call us, right? So that's our strength. So now we're talking webinars, uh, speaking engagements, opportunities to illustrate our proficiency in the space as the thing that we think is differentiating uh, in the marketplace. So regardless of what you think your skill is or your differentiating trait might be, trying to identify what that is and then trying to amplify it, I think is really the key so that uh, you've got the right types of leads coming in the door and you're having the right types of conversations on the other side. Yep, absolutely. And what you say in some of those things just prompted the question in my head when it comes to staying up to date on various industry trends, changes in the marketplace, how do you go about doing so? And, and how do you incorporate this knowledge into your sales strategy in real time, like on the fly adaptation as industry and trends change? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different ways for us. And I think they're fairly generic. Like I said, we've got an academic bone anyway. So we're in that channel for us where you're talking about webinars, symposiums, even classes that some of our folks teach in universities keeps us on that academic edge of what's going on. On the flip side, making sure you're gathering the feedback that's available from your clients and prospects is really the most important thing. No matter what your business is, you don't want to lose those nuggets. And it's very easy for someone on your team to have a conversation and kind of hear something, think, oh, well, that's interesting. And then just not either have it in their head on what they're supposed to do with that bit of information or not have a channel. So uh, we use Slack internally in our organization. We've created a Slack channel specifically for that type of stuff. Um, it doesn't have to be true, right? You can caveat it and say, somebody told me this, haven't been able to verify it, but if we hear it seven times, it's starting to sound more likely to be accurate, right? So 
we, we have a specific channel where our sales team and our financial engineering team can share what have I heard from the industry about something that's coming around the corner, uh, something that they want, maybe from a feature perspective, something about our competitors, whatever it may be. And then we collate that information to try to make sure that we have a, based on the best information available, here's our picture of our market and what people are looking for and avenues and, and areas that we might be able to take advantage of. And then what we often have done is then we'll run campaigns off of that, right? Hey, we found this little crack over here that uh, seems to be an issue that we now talk with three, four people about. Let's go see if we can find other people that might have that same problem. And then before you know it, you become like the problem solver kind of group, right? I don't know what your problem is, but what I want is if you've got a problem, call us. <laughs> like, I don't know for sure that we can solve it, but we got a lot of smart people and we've been able to do it for a bunch of different people. So there's a good chance. And so if you're sitting there beating your head against the wall, your system won't do it right, or you don't really know the right answer from a finance perspective, that's what we want uh, the, the marketplace to know about us. So for me, I think if you don't have a way to structurally capture that type of information and data from the marketplace, your people are probably your best channel, whether it's your account managers, with your salespeople, whether it's your engineers, they're the ones with boots on the ground talking to people out in the, the marketplace. And that's where you're going to get your best information in terms of what's the need, what are, do people like, what do they don't, what are the area that's not really covered well, all those kinds of things. It's really your own internal network of folks. Just make sure that you're capturing it and you don't let that stuff just come and go. And then, because you know how many times you've probably heard, oh yeah, I think somebody said that to me like a month ago or something, right? You don't want that. You want to try to have ways that, look, even if you're not positive, report it. We'll stick somebody on it if we think it's good enough that we need to track it down. But let's make sure they're at least gathering all that information so that we get a, a good a picture as we can of what's going on in the industry. Yeah, no, those are great points. I think even Hypergen, we leverage a similar strategy, having a designated channel for problems, the good, the bad, the ugly trends, things our competitors are doing that we're not, whether it's word of mouth or things that we've noticed ourselves. But yeah, I think those are some pretty good points you brought up there, Tate. The nice thing about that too, John, is if you, let's say you've got something, you're not sure if it's right or not but you socialize it, now that's at least on people's minds. So the next time the topic comes up, you can ask somebody else, hey, by the way, this is this right or not? Did we have that wrong or is this the case? So if you hide it and you, you haven't socialized it, then people don't know. Let's at least go ask questions about it, right? Like it's this unknown topic that I could actually probably gather even more information on if I was thinking about it or if I had a, a socialized place to, to record it. So Tate, just one thing I was curious about, we ask uh, everyone who comes on the show, as far as being a sales leader, obviously it takes a toll on the amount of hours that are in a day, but curious to get a feel for how you structure that work-life balance, especially see, overseeing so many different facets. Yeah, John, I don't know if I'm great at it, to be honest, but I think pre-pandemic, was obviously a different world than we're all into today in terms of hours in the office and things of that nature. I've always thought of sales particularly as being one of those things that the good news is you can do it from anywhere. The bad news is you can do it from anywhere. 
I think what that has always meant for me and the, the people on my teams, we have a lot of ways to measure your effectiveness with your CRM metrics and all those kinds of things, production, sales. We, we get into these discussions around measurements and metrics and things. And sales is always that place that's, yeah, how many metrics do you want? We've got a hundred of them, which, which meter or diagram or bar chart or counts or, you know, whatever. We, we've got all kinds of things that we can bring to the table there. So the good news is that, yeah, you literally can do it from anywhere. We have a SaaS-based platform. And so we do a lot of Zooms and that sort of thing, WebEx, Teams, whatever it might be to demonstrate our platforms and interact with our clients' prospects. Even pre-pandemic, from my perspective, your job is to get the job done. And when you do that, I don't really care. And now it's hard to talk to people and have meetings and do demos at midnight. You're probably going to have to put in a, a general business day, but I don't care if you have, you need to run an errand or go to the dentist or whatever it might be, right? Like salespeople get measured based on their success. And if it's like an onion, right? So you see how much have you sold? And then you can peel back and say, well, if you're not selling enough, how many meetings are you having? And if you're not having enough meetings, then how many conversations are you having? And if you're not having enough conversations, well, how many emails are you sending? And Usually somewhere along that path, you can see, well, see here, you're at 20% of what the successful people are doing. And that's pretty easy to measure. Now, how you do that and when you do that and that kind of stuff isn't as important. It's just, it's pretty easy to measure. So you need to make sure that your goals are measuring up. So I think post pandemic, the world has changed a lot and a lot of, a lot more people are on a similar path from that perspective. Look. You need to get your job done. How you do it and when you do it is up to you. I think it's hard for some people to learn how to work from home and not be distracted and, and make sure you're still getting things accomplished. I think we all had to learn how to do that during the pandemic. So that's fixed a lot of that. And like I said, it's all pretty measurable. So you can see how many interactions salespeople have and things like that. And the CRM systems allow you to stack rank all that stuff and you can get a pretty good feel for how it's going. So I think in today's world, it's better than ever. I think a lot of companies, including ours, have adopted a, hey, you want to work somewhere different for a month or something? Like, that's fine, right? Make sure you know the difference between vacation and work and you're working when you're supposed to be working and things like that. But otherwise... Do I care if you're in Charleston or Sacramento, right? It doesn't really make much difference as long as you can get done what needs to get done. Now, like I said, the bad part about that equation is that when a prospect needs something, <laughs> or then we've got to pretty much be on top of it. And if you're out of the country and need a backup, then your responsibility is to make that backup. If you want to tackle it yourself, it does, we're not doing heart surgery here so it doesn't have to be in the next 30 seconds but you got to be on top of it right it can't go for five days or two weeks or something and we didn't get back to somebody i think today's world is much better for work-life balance i'm probably not great at it but uh at least i'm open to it yeah yeah appreciate the feedback <laughs> there Tate. Uh, those are some good points for sure uh in 
Maybe as we wrap this up a little bit, I'd be really keenly interested to hear some of the advice you have for other aspiring uh, sales leaders, whether it's working your way up in an organization, even we, we speak with a lot of founders uh, of, of companies too. Uh, just generally speaking, what advice do you have as a sales leader yourself? And maybe in a similar vein, what do you see as maybe some of the some of the challenges facing what, not just your own industry, but just in general over the next coming years? Yeah, look, I think it's, I would say it's complicated and it's simple, right? For me, it pretty much comes down to the people, right? If you can surround yourself with good people and you're on the same page, success usually comes off of that. Same sort of thing in, in selling and becoming a sales leader. Like I said, there's a bifurcation between being a seller and you're the lone wolf out there doing your own thing or sales leader where you really care more about the success of the people underneath you. But you have to be able to cross that bridge, but that's still a people thing, right? So if you have people on your team that you're not excited about helping <laughs> to be successful, then you probably need to fix that. If you're working with people in your executive team that you don't have confidence in, it makes it difficult. Business is tough enough when it's outward focusing. If you're focused inward on, are my people doing the right things? Are they capable? They have my back. We're all focused on the same stuff. If you're worried about that too, it makes it doubly difficult. And so I think particularly with markets the way they've been over the last couple of years or year and a half or so, that's tested a lot of that. And people that jumped for an opportunity, then got in there, things didn't go as well as they thought. And maybe they're one of the first people out the door because there's no people bonding. For me, it all revolves around the people side of things. Do you trust the people you work with? Do they have your back? You have theirs. We're all focused and, and working together for success. It really applies to really any position, but I think if you're going to be a sales leader, crossing that bridge from an individual contributor to helping others and being just as excited when they get the commission or when they get the win as it is for you to do it, really set yourself up well for success. Absolutely. And then we can just take another pause here to finish off just for the sake of our listenership. If they, if, if there's any kind of events you have coming up, or if they want to learn a little bit more about digit, what you guys do specifically industry specifics as well, where's the best uh, direction for them to be pointed in? Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, our website is uh, a little bit under construction, but we've got a website that would be good to visit. It's actually D one G one. So it's digit, but with numbers instead of eyes, try typing that on your phone. It's always a, a good time for all. But yeah, you can check us out there. We compete in the high net worth, ultra high net worth space with wealth management software, and um, we're cutting edge. So we'd be happy to, to, to talk to anybody who's interested. All right. Thanks so much for the time, Tate. We appreciate you uh, taking the time to be on the show and we'll look forward to hopefully catching up with you soon. Absolutely, John. Thanks again for the opportunity. Appreciate it.